we discussed some difficult topics in this episode. So I just want to let you know, it might be triggering for sensitive listeners, but it's info that you'd want to have. I had lied to myself so much in an attempt to protect myself and my happiness and my well-being that I I eventually started to believe that lie and, you know, was living that with like, no, 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 I'm happy. I'm choosing this. And and that was just to, again, safeguard myself. So, you know, every client that saw me thought that I loved my job. Okay, it basically comes down to this. You have to forget everything your culture has told you about being a woman. And then you can begin your day. Hi, I'm Jill Sorensen, and you are listening to the new feminist podcast, The Place for Common Sense Feminism. Our guest today, Andrea Hines, tweeted this. To the women I employed at my brothel, I am so sorry. To all the girlfriends and wives of the men I had sex with, and all the women in family units with men who I took family unit funds from, I am so sorry. To the women I impacted culturally by saying sex work is work, I am so sorry. I have many regrets from my time in the sex trade, but none so many or severe as the damage I directly and indirectly did to my fellow women. At 22 years old, Andrea Hines found herself 60,000 in debt from a string of abusive relationships and entered into the commercial sex industry in Canada. She worked in prostitution for seven years and had over 4,000 customer sessions. She even opened a brothel herself, hoping that the women she hired would suffer less abuse, but to no avail. Barely surviving the industry herself, she finally quit in 2013 and is now a writer, speaker, and filmmaker working to raise awareness about sexual commercial exploitation and the harms of the sex work ideology. So Andrea, thank you so much for coming on the New Feminist Podcast. I am so, so excited to talk to you. I have a million questions. Thank you. I am so, so happy to be here today. And I, I want to say I really appreciate uh, that you are doing all these fabulous interviews that you're doing. And I especially appreciate your statement about common sense feminism, because I really think that we have lost course a lot on that. So happy to see somebody bringing it back. Oh, uh, thank you. I could not agree with you more. I feel very passionate about that. So anyway, we're going to jump straight in since we have an hour. Um, you worked for seven years in prostitution. What led you into prostitution? How did it start? And how old were you? So this is a very, very long journey. And uh, as I've said, probably on every podcast discussion I've participated in, unless you have several hours, it, it will be a very, <laughs> very long time to pull it all apart. But um, I think the thing to highlight is that it is very rarely just one thing that ever leads women into the commercial sex industry and being exploited therein. So for most of us, it is a series of events. Um, that's not always necessarily true in cases of human trafficking, obviously. Then it can be just a, a one-time situation of being forced into it by a third party. But when you look at um, the gray area of commercial sexual exploitation, it's more often than not a series of events so in my case, it's, it's mostly five things that jump out to me that were the 
the pushing factors that led me there. Um, the very, very first one would be cultural grooming. That's the one I want to really highlight the most as the foundation of it all. Because I think that everything that followed after that um, really operated on that cultural narrative. And so very, very strong uh, depictions of sex work ideology, of, of romanticizing um, exploitation of, of the power dynamic at play. And so um, later it, it began to be abusive relationships and that started in my teens, dating men who were involved in organized crime, drug trafficking, um, just not in healthy situations themselves. And then as a result, being emotionally abused by those men, um, financially abused by those men, and at times physically abused as well. So um, the third thing I would say is debt, which is probably, you know, the main thing for most women that enter into prostitution. And that debt was also paired with financial illiteracy. So they kind of went hand in hand. The financial illiteracy contributed to further debt. And um, that was about $60,000 that I was in debt at the age of 22. And a lot of that as well was tying into those abusive relationships and trying to appease men, you know, covering costs that, you know, they would have that they couldn't cover because I considered them my boyfriend or someone I loved and I, I wanted to help them. And the third thing was no viable education or marketable skills and just being a young woman in the world and, and struggling to make it and um, not being able to get a good paying job that was really offering me a livable income and working five part-time jobs all at once, just, you know, most of them minimum wage, um, part-time hours, entry-level type positions. Mm -hmm. And then the fifth thing was really kind of, I think, the main catalyst that was the, the final stamp that pushed me to the door of the brothel. And that was damage to a condo, a very small condo that I lived in at the time that I owned. I had um, a seat go, which is, I guess, a seal of some type in a tap of a bathtub. And my condo was flooded and there was just an extensive amount of water damage that occurred to the unit. And at this point, I'm now completely in debt, working all these jobs, maxing out my hours, no education, no opportunity for a really good career to get stability and now no money to repair this condo. Um, nobody would buy the condo. It, it was just, again, like I said, a series of very unfortunate events that just kind of had this compounding impact. And how old were you when, when this all was happening? So um, the abusive relationship started at 16. So it was really a, a period of, you know, from 16 to 22, where it was just a complete unraveling of my life where it was just one thing after another, after another, just taking me deeper and deeper into a situation that ultimately would take me into prostitution. Mm -hmm. And so when you started as an escort, what was the cultural narrative about it that you were sold? The narrative that I saw was really two depictions and two depictions only that were very polarized and very distinct from one another. One was glamorous sex work, very, you know, uh, female empowerment, you know, liberation, big money, glamour, um, prestige. And then the other one was 
human trafficking depicted in a very, very extreme sense. So women smuggled on, on ships in sea cans and women chained to bed frames and, um, you know, abused horrifically, whipped and, and um, you know, traumatized. So there was really no, um, what I kind of think is the standard uh, depiction of what prostitution actually is. It was just these completely sensationalized versions on each end. And the one that I saw the most of was the, the sex work ideology depiction. So that was the glamour, the romance. Um, you know, I would see some of the human trafficking depictions, but it wasn't a, a ratio like of what I saw the former. Mm -hmm. So that's um, going back to your first question, kind of plays into that cultural grooming again. It was just everywhere. It was all in music videos, it was in every movie I watched, it was every TV show, it was in magazine ads. I, I couldn't escape it. So it was like it was grooming me from childhood to believe that that was the role of women, that that was normal, that that was okay, you know, for, for women to want to pursue that. And so I look back to being about nine years old. And um, the dream that I had for my future was to be a stripper and a waitress. And I think, again, that was movies that had done that to me. So that was uh, really what Pretty I think. woman, yeah. Yes, yeah, <laughs> Julia Roberts. Yeah, yeah. Richard Gere is going to appear. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and we still see that happening. That's such a strong narrative. We're not seeing the truth to prostitution, which is nothing like those depictions that we see quite frequently. So then you, I guess you just, how did you know who to call? You just called an escort agency and that's how you found the people to work for or how? how... So I was at one of my five part-time jobs as I'm trying to dig myself out of this debt. One of the jobs was detailing luxury cars at a BMW dealership. So I would see actually a lot of escorts who had cars that would bring them in and um, these cars were $100,000 vehicles and I'd see these women you know dressed very glamorously coming in having no problem to pay you know the exorbitant rates to have their vehicles detailed and cleaned they would have luxury handbags um, I'd see the the men who would own these vehicles and you know always typically had a beautiful woman along in tow with them and um, really it was then in my my uh, coffee room there at my job that I opened up the back of my local newspaper and I saw an ad for a brothel and it said adult entertainment make $2,000 a week. Mm -hmm. And I still didn't really understand what it entailed. I, I had grown up in a very small Northern town outside of where I reside now and there was no visible sex trade. So whenever I saw adult entertainment, I didn't necessarily understand that that meant, um, full-on sexual intercourse I thought it was stripping like I had seen in the movies or webcamming or something of the like but just really had no clue but needed that money desperately so I I called the number wow so um tell me about your earliest experiences how did you handle it how did it make you feel what what was the first uh job well, um, I didn't handle them well, I'll say that. Um, I was far too present whenever um, I entered the sex industry and started having sex with these men. I was too much myself. And um, 
later on that did change where I had to learn to separate uh, who I actually am from the character that I had to adopt in those rooms. But um, the very, very first sex buyer, he scoped me out. He was seeking the new girl, the young girl, um, because those women are very easy to take advantage of because they don't typically have enough uh, wherewithal to have established strong boundaries and to be confident in upholding those boundaries. And so he um, forced sex acts on me that I wasn't comfortable with. And at the end of the encounter, he actually shorted me $20 and told me that that was what the services were worth that I had provided him with. And that's what other women would charge him. So Therefore, he would only pay me that amount, even though I had quoted him, you know, the accurate amount. Were you aware that you would have to have a sexual encounter with him when you were an escort or was that a surprise? Well, um, I think there is a distinction. So escorting is is not typically the same as, as operating in a brothel. So escorting is, again, going out independently as your own person, typically, um, and seeing them in a hotel or perhaps their residence or, or something like that. But a brothel, um, once I had kind of showed up after seeing the ad in the newspaper, the madam there had given me a tour of the brothel. And at that point, I still didn't even know what happened there. But I, I had this idea, again, from movies of what we would call a rub and tug. So I had said to myself, oh, I, I think this is like a, a massage parlor, like a rub and tug. Mm-hmm. And so I, I asked her basically what happened. And she then informed me that I would be having full sexual intercourse with the men. So I did go into the first session knowing that that would be expected of me. Uh-huh. But they do say to you, um, you know, you can do whatever you want to do or whatever you don't want to do. But every single man who comes here will want to have full sexual intercourse with you for the most part. So it's really up to you how much money you want to make. If you aren't giving full sexual access to yourself, you will make less money because there's other women who do offer those services, so to speak. So I did know what I was going into, but I I thought I would have more control and more agency than I ended up having in that situation. Mm -hmm. And, And how did it make you feel after the first time? Oh, you know, it was a really weird experience because, again, I I think I went in there expecting it to be like normal sex, normal sex that I had had with boyfriends in my past that involves some type of emotion, some type of mutuality, some type of respect and trust. And it was so mechanical and he was very aggressive with me. It was um, very dehumanizing. And so I remember going home that night and just crying and crying and crying before I went to bed because I just felt so much shame and so much disappointment from, you know, those things not aligning and it just feeling like something completely uh, different, like I had been used and discarded. But on the same or on the other end of it, I also had this really, really strong sense of empowerment because I now had hundreds of dollars, um, you know, over $700 in my hand from having been at that brothel for just one shift and thinking to myself, oh my gosh, like this is it. This is exactly where I need to be and what I need to be doing. And this is going to be what saves me. And I just have to, you know, toughen up and and get used to this and adjust, so to speak. Mm -hmm. 
So can you share what a regular day in the life of a woman working in a brothel is like? I think it's different for each woman based on uh, the reasons why she's there, how long she's been there, and what narrative she is telling herself about her participation in the sex industry. Um, and it's also very different based on where she operates. So like I said, escorting can be a bit different from brothels because brothels have a much more structured feeling to them, a much more structured uh, regiment to your day. So that structure and going to the same location every day almost gives a sense that you're, you're doing a normal job, right? It's just sort of like going to the office, except you're going to the brothel and you're going there a couple times a week and you're going for, you know, the same hours typically during those times or during those days. So for me, um, my personal schedule, I would wake up every day at six o'clock in the morning. I would shower, I would eat breakfast. Then I would go to the brothel and I would sell sex from nine o'clock in the morning until 4 p.m. in the afternoon. And during that time, I would sexually service between three and five men per day. And I would do this about four to five days a week. So it became very routine, very monotonous. And um, then, like most people, my evenings ended up being pretty normal, just as if I had just gone to my workplace and came home. So I would go home and, you know, do my grocery shopping, do the chores around my house. I would go running and exercise. I would study for university. So it it had this really weird feeling of being a normal life, but not a normal life. Very, um, very, you know, just Jekyll and Hyde feeling to it where you follow right. one person, but not. And um, I think in some ways at, at times, depending on who I operated alongside, it, my I was very atypical. So um, I was a sober sex seller all the time, but I did see a lot of drug use within the brothels. I saw a lot of life dysfunction and, and a lot of life chaos that the other women were experiencing. So I think my experience had more of that feeling of, of an everyday typical job, but that wasn't the case for a lot of those other women. And, and how were you feeling emotionally? Cause you said you had to separate yourself and be kind of a personality. How did you handle deal with that emotion um for the first two months I didn't do very well I I really struggled to separate myself and and not be authentic because I like to believe and I like to try to be a very authentic person so I believe strongly in human connection and uh, kindness to others and openness and all those traits so I, I didn't do well, and I, I don't know exactly how long it was, but I want to say it was maybe about two months until I had an absolute mental breakdown um, and just called the owner one day and said, I, I can't do this anymore. I need to quit. Like, I don't care that I'm in debt. I, I can't keep going. And she just said, take a week off and come back. You know, your breakdown just hit you a little sooner than it does typically for the other women. Usually that doesn't happen until about six months in. And so what that, that breakdown? What are where are the emotions in that breakdown? Like, what were you feeling that caused? Oh, just um, just compartmentalization, where I I felt lost. I was trying to um, get my head in the game, so to speak, because I could I could see these other women 
almost selling sex so effortlessly. And it seemed like they weren't coming out of the room feeling flustered or feeling uh, violated. But, you know, I would go home and and there was one time I had sex with a man who was 93 and I was 23 years old. He was 70 years older than me. And uh, I was, I scrubbed my skin raw in the shower that night. Cause I just kept smelling this man over and over and, you know, thinking it was his, his body odor on me, but it was just his smell traumatizing me. And so it was just all those types of incidences that just kept hitting me and hitting me. But then it was like, you got to go back, you got to go back. And I, I couldn't um, get in the groove, I guess you could say. And so the mental breakdown was just, you know, repeated crying in the, the first time, uh, first time frame there and just not adjusting well whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So how did you physically deal with it? What were the physical safety and health risks? Oh, my body, it took a beating over the seven years I sold sex. I, I was constantly bruised. Uh, my skin was cut a lot of the times from men who would dig their nails within my skin and drag them so much um, or um, yeah just biting me they would bite my vagina during oral sex Um, I had a lot of vaginal swelling a lot of vaginal tears Um, and, and that happens because a lot of times you're not aroused when these men touch you so you're not vaginally lubricating And these men are not making any effort to please you in any way. So you're not lubricated and they're instantly shoving their fingernails up inside you and and tearing you. And then you, you know, are very, very sore. You're at risk of infection and just pain during sex. I had a lot of lower back pain. That was probably something that I dealt with the most because, you know, they're um, each one of these men that come to see you are so sexually amped up and charged that they're not going easy on you. They are violently having sex with your body. So you're arching your back and they're just slamming their body into yours in, you know, doggy style positions and and things like that. So you end up with a lot of back pain from just being tossed around by people who are typically twice your size. Mm -hmm. I had neck pain from giving oral sex and them just grabbing my head and reefing my head up and down violently and uh, headaches from all the pounding impact of of the sex and just sheer exhaustion I remember you know going home and once I do everything I had to do chores wise or whatever else I was not up late at night because I just would have to go to sleep to just recover because every day it was almost akin to running a marathon it was very very hard on my body and so the health risks there was obviously a lot of those that that resulted and STIs are always the biggest risk and scare because condoms can slip off um, condoms break and also a lot of men intentionally remove condoms which we call stealthing and uh, so that's always scary Um, there's the risk of herpes there's the risk of genital warts because condoms don't protect the base of the penile area. So that is still skin on skin contact. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got really, really lucky. I, you know, sold sex over 4,300 times and I never Mm -hmm. once got an STI, but um, yeah, very scary health risk. Choking is probably one that is very, very common, very dangerous because it's depicted so often in pornography Mm -hmm. 
And uh, there's so many risks that come with choking that people don't understand and don't know about. So you can end up with a fractured larynx, which is your, your voice box. You can end up with seizures. You can end up with pulmonary edema, which is fluid in your lungs. You can even die upwards of 36 hours later after having choked. So, um, you know, it's very scary to see that happening and being so normalized now because it was so common. So many Johns would choke me. And a couple of times I came near to losing consciousness because they were just so ramped up. They didn't know limitations. And, and really, I don't think many of them cared. What percentage of men would choke you or be physically violent? Um, it's hard to say because I, I think now looking back at it, a lot of it was violence regardless of the mm -hmm. severity of it. So, so much of it was violence. It was just on a continuum of severity, but, um, slapping was a big common one too. Like a lot of times men would just reach out and slap you across the face or they'd, you know, slap your, your backside, your, your bottom and, um, uh, again, just like digging into your skin, pulling your hair so far back that you can't even breathe. And a lot of times I think people would just say, well, that's just rough sex, you know, and a lot of women like that. And what's so bad about that? That's not violence. But I think violence is a very subjective term. So I look back at it and I, I feel like, you know, probably about 75% of it to me felt like violence and, and I experienced it as such. Would you be able to have boundaries or allowed to have boundaries where you can say this is not accepted, this is not accepted or? Yeah, yeah, you could. Um, but the problem with that is that the more boundaries that you put up, the less likely you are to have repeat clientele and the less likely you are to end up with a good review on the Internet escort review boards. Um, a lot of men want a girl that just comes across as absolute nympho, likes everything rough, you know, give me more, give it to me harder. Like, so a lot of times, even if we would put up those boundaries, it would almost kill the vibe for the man because so much of it is power and control and domination on their end. So if we put up those boundaries, a lot of times we would have to almost work harder then after to bring them back up to the state of climax. And so most of the time when they would get, you know, excessively rough, it usually was an indicator that they were about to orgasm. And because we wanted them off of our bodies and out of our bodies as soon as possible, that's why we oftentimes just let them do what they were going to do just so that we didn't have to have longer trying to bring them back to that state and endure more of that for a second round. Right, right. So when did you change your mind about prostitution? Was there a particular experience, something that happened? Um, I changed my mind probably about five years in or so. And, and I, I want to say I went into prostitution kind of with a mixed mindset. So even though I had had this really, really strong belief that, you know, hey, sex work can be all these glamorous things and, you know, there's, there's beauty in it, so to speak. Um, I did also have about, I want to say 5% of me that never fully, fully got captured 100% by the ideology. And I really um, think that that's because I had good parents who, you know, um, kind of debunked a lot of those things in life to me where I didn't 
you know, I wasn't, uh, it wasn't a free for all. Like I did have a pretty traditional upbringing that had what I think would be, you know, some good teachings to it. So um, whenever I did enter prostitution, I said, I'm only doing this for two months. And the day that I'm okay with what I'm doing, the day, that's the day I need to quit because I, I know that this could get dangerous. It could be bad. But then, you know, when you're doing something um, and you're doing it repeatedly, you start to almost operate on autopilot and numb out quite a bit. And, and really, that's the two options for women is that they're either present and they stay present or they dissociate. So, um, you know, you dissociate. And of course, that has its own risks of numbness and being detached and ending up with like this fragmented sense of yourself. But um, eventually that wears off. And that's what happened to me. And so as there was about five things that led me into the commercial sex industry, there was also coincidentally kind of five major things that kind of took me out of it, I guess. And it was really this very, very slow awakening, this very slow unraveling that occurred over several months. So those five things were seeing the harm that was happening to other women selling sex. That was the first one. And uh, there was times that I could see women so drugged out and having sex with these men that it was almost like these men were having sex with with rubber sex dolls. You know, there was no person in that woman in that time in that room and so to watch these men use their bodies and um, just disregard them and their humanity it was like watching people being raped and um, I couldn't unsee that and uh, you know then once you start seeing that harm happening to those women I started seeing and piecing together all the harm that was happening to the wives and the girlfriends and the families and that was happening um, with women who were showing up at the brothel with photos of their husbands and, and children and saying, have you seen this man? And, uh, you know, men who would come in and laugh about their wives or, you know, show me their wedding finger, their wedding ring on their finger and saying, you know, I just got married, but hey, it's not cheating because sex work is work and, you know, still being in that honeymoon phase and um, on, on that issue, I wrote a paper, actually, that I, I really recommend people read. It's called A Mule for the Patriarchy, Waking Up to the Harm of Prostitution to Wives and Families. And I published that in 2020. So seeing that harm happening to the, the external women that weren't just in the sex industry, but all women. Mm-hmm. Um, the third thing, um, and this was very powerful, was reading exited women's writings and seeing the work of other experiential women who had gone on to denounce the industry and become abolitionists. And there was really two women in particular for that. Uh, Rebecca Mott, she ran a blog back in those days, and it was just so powerful, her writing. And Annie Lobert was the second woman, and she did the documentary in 2010 called Hookers Saved on the Strip. And so seeing that counter narrative was just eye opening because they really talked about, you know, this concept of sex work and how it, it's a farce, how it's not what it is presented as. So that really kind of started to really uh, exponentially unravel it for me. And then the last two things um, that were of those five was reading violence against women literature in college. So seeing and understanding the theory behind it all and 
the bigger picture of systemic oppression and patriarchy and all these things that I, I didn't understand anything about. And so that all kind of came together into the fifth thing, which was me not being able to dissociate myself anymore. So once I knew all these things and once I could recognize those things, I couldn't turn away from it. I couldn't justify it anymore. I couldn't rationalize it. So at that point, it was like every man that touched me, I was present again. It was like going back to the very beginning when I started selling sex. I was mm-hmm. back at that, that you know, day one where every touch, every smell, it was absorbed into my body and I couldn't leave my body anymore. So those five things really were, were enough that it uh, changed my mind about it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what kind of man pays for sex? Is there a particular type? Oh, you know, that's the common question, you know, everybody everybody wants to know, right? Because they say, let's, let's stop, you know, the problem from the source, like, how do we fix the problem? And and we know that the problem is men, men drive the demand for this. And, you know, if men weren't buying sex and demanding commercial sex, we wouldn't have uh, the need for women to sell it. So um, there's really, sadly, no specific demographic. It's, it's all men. I have seen men from all walks of life. I have seen all men. Uh, I've seen men of all ethnicities, ages, um, you know, everywhere from 18 to 93. But um, even though every type of man is a sex buyer, um, I would say that there were certain groups that preferred me, though. So it was usually older Caucasian married men who would seek me out. Um, but I also had a lot of Asian men who bought sex from me because they um, more than one told me I looked like a Japanese anime character, which I, I don't really know anything about anime, but I guess they have a specific lean build to their body and petite breasts and, um, you know, blue eyes, which isn't too common in in Asian communities so it, yeah, that was really kind of the two groups that, that were they married or single, or was it equal between single men or men in a relationship? In my case specifically, about ninety percent of the men who saw me were married. Wow. Um, there were a few that weren't, but typically, even the ones that weren't married were in some type of dating relationship or committed relationship of some type. I I really can't think of too many men that were single who came to see me. Wow. That's Mm -hmm. that's surprising. And what age group? Um, Again, all ages. Typically the ones that would come to see me um, were about 50, 60, probably Um, oldest being about 65. That was really the, the largest chunk of those who came to see me, but Um, all ages again were quite common we would even sometimes have underage teens like 16 year old boys who would try to come in and pay for sex and and lie and say that they were 18 and you know a few of the women would say show us your id like we we don't trust you that you're 18 and of course they then wouldn't be but um yeah there was all types but I eventually a few years into selling sex I did make a rule that I would not stay with men under 30 because I found that men who were in their 20s were so, so deeply conditioned by pornography that they were the absolute roughest, the absolute most violent uh, demographic. So I completely stopped seeing any men in their 20s 
uh, probably, yeah, about a year, maybe two years into selling sex, I just completely stopped with, with that population. Wow. Yeah. So what do men get wrong about women in the business? Like where does the happy hooker storyline come from? I think many men believe that uh, most women choose prostitution. And I think that they believe that that's almost absolute. It's like the exception is the woman who doesn't. Whereas I think it's completely opposite of that. Um, and really men are buying the lie. And it's this two-way thing that happens where men want to protect their guilty conscience about using money to bypass consent. So they are really the ones that demand that the happy hooker narrative be given because I think if they knew that women were disgusted with them and did not desire them, I, I want to believe deep down that those men wouldn't be sex buyers anymore. You know, some obviously might because, again, of the power and the control and the, the disregard. But I think most men are, are good humans that are really just lying to themselves and saying, no, 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 she, she likes it. She chooses it because they are lonely themselves. They are... Um, you know, unable to form good relationships with women. So to them, the, lying to themselves is much easier than doing the work of actually forming meaningful relationships with women outside of prostitution. So in this, you know, attempt to protect their guilty conscience, they demand that happy hooker narrative. And so women respond to that in giving that to them because that's how we keep the money flowing and how we survive is by appeasing those who have the money that we need. So um, it's it's really kind of two-way, right? Then, of course, because women are, are saying this narrative as well, then that perpetuates it where then men who are coming into the environment and into the scene that's what they are then presented with so then they believe oh well all women are happy all women choose it because that's what they're saying so again it's this like you know um this cycle that really feeds off of off of itself but um some women do eventually come to believe that that they choose it and that they are happy and and for, you know for many years i got to that place as well where i had lied to myself so much in an attempt to protect myself and my happiness and my well-being that I, I eventually started to believe that lie and, you know, was living that with like, no, 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 I'm happy. I'm choosing this. And, and that was just to, again, safeguard myself. So, you know, every client that saw me thought that I loved my job. There was never a client that thought, you know, that I didn't like my job because I, I had to sell that to him for both of our sakes. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. So how, why did you end up starting um, a, a brothel? Oh, uh, yeah, that was, um, that was interesting. You know, it's honestly, it's the biggest regret of my life. And I always have a hard time talking about that because I, I regret that so, so much. But at the time of opening a brothel, it was truly with the best intentions because I wanted to have full control of my own operations. I was tired of operating out of other brothels for other madams who were not very kind, not very considerate, um, you know, would tell me like, go in the room, stay with that man. If you don't stay with that man, you need to pay me the room rental fee because if you hadn't rejected him, my business would have gotten that money. So go stay with him, you know, toughen up. 
And, um, you know, the hours that I operated, they were constantly trying to get me to, you know, operate more days, more days. Can you pick up this shift? Can you stay for the double shift of this day? I really felt exploited and used because, again, I was young and I was making them a lot of money, a lot of money. So I really wanted to have control of my own operations, but I also wanted to be a better uh, owner than, than, you know, they were for other women to have to operate under. So it was, you know, me thinking, well, no, I've seen sex work is work. I know it can be beautiful. It can be great. I just need to be in, in the power position and then it won't be like what I'm seeing. So I can help myself. I can help these women. I can take a few more days off and not have somebody calling me and saying, can you come in? Can you come in? So um, I just kept on always believing, you know, that it was the environment, that it was the conditions, that all those things were causing the harm. And I, I never could piece together that it was the buyers and it was the men and it was the system of, you know, paid sex that was hurting us all. So that's really what led me to own the brothel was, um, you know, those desires, but also the normalization of it by my, my city, my municipality they very much so said it's a a business like any other and here, here's your business license and you can operate. And so that also fed into that conditioning mindset that I wasn't doing anything wrong and it was okay. And um, that my place would be better than all the other places I had, you know, operated from. I read an interesting comment. You said, it's not a business like any other. It's not a victimless business. You Mm -hmm. said somewhere and, and, um, um, so I'm jumping in. Uh, is there a common thread the most women share who end up in the industry? I think there is. I think um, it's mainly two things. A lot of times women have low self-esteem. That was one thing that I saw a lot of was women who were incredibly intelligent, very capable, very charismatic, you know, beautiful, had everything that they needed, but they just lacked that self-esteem and that self-worth to believe that they were worth more and as a result they didn't demand more for themselves they um they resigned to to you know the limited opportunities in a patriarchal society which i don't fault them for in any way you know it's we're as women we struggle we really really struggle there's a lot of broader sex-based issues at play which keep women um you know, subjugated in our societies. And, and that leads a lot of women to a desperate need for money, you know, and I saw this post uh, the other day, I think it was by survivor Mia Doring. And she said, you know, it's very interesting. In these times of inflation and poverty, we see women flocking to the sex trade desperate for money. But we're seeing just as many men with excessive money going to these brothels and using it to exploit women. So there's a lot of disparity amongst men and women economically and socially in our society. So I think, you know, when you when you place that upon women, we get into this defeatist state that it's it's hopeless. And so once someone says, hey, I'll give you $300, $350 an hour to come have sex for money, what woman really in her mind is not going to consider that, you know, amongst the the bigger issues and the bigger problems. So 
there is, you know, of course, um, the people that will argue, no, all these women who enter prostitution have histories of abuse, like childhood abuse or intimate partner violence, but it, it's not always the case. There is, you know, some cases like that, but I really just find it's, it's money. It's always money and the social and economic struggles of women. That's particularly the, the absolute, you know, underlying issue for so many of them. Because you don't have a wealthy woman or a girl from a wealthy background coming into the industry. It's always economic. Yeah, yeah. I never saw it. I I did see the odd woman who ended up um, doing quite well for herself financially. And again, that's a narrative some people don't want to hear because it's not common. That is so, so rare. So I think whenever you mention that, people kind of say, you know, no, no, that's not true. But um, I did see some women um, who would end up, you know, taking law school studies and did go on to have successful careers outside of the commercial sex trade, but they were so rare and really they were all very privileged women who, um, you know, didn't come into the industry with trauma, didn't come in with a real huge debt load. They came in knowing that they had big dreams, big aspirations and then, of course, the money was how they were going to get there. So very, very, very small demographic of those women. But, yeah, I never saw the wealthy woman enter the industry and, and choose it. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess we could kind of touched on this already. But what made you finally, finally quit and change direction? Mm-hmm. So after those five things that kind of unraveled it all for me, what was the thing I guess that finally made me quit was that I could not stop fantasizing about killing myself. I was at such a state of uh, numbness that whenever I wasn't feeling numb, the only feeling I had was just sadness and depression. And I, I already felt so dead on the inside. Like I kind of say it's like this fire, right? We all have this fire in our belly And I like to think I have a big fire that burns strong and burns passionately. And at the time, after seven years of prostitution, it was down to just embers, you know, just tiny little burning embers. There was nothing left in me. I was exhausted. I I couldn't keep going like that. And I, I just couldn't see another day of going to that brothel and having, you know, a lineup of men just using me one after another after another. So it was very scary to be at that place because you don't feel real. I I was consistently in these states of floating. And that's how I can describe dissociation the best is floating um, and just feeling like you're not actually positioned in your body, in your, in your flesh. Um, I just felt so detached and, uh, So it got scary to be at the point of, you know, very, very much fantasizing about suicide and strongly considering it and even at times planning how I would do it. And I I obviously want to live and I knew that, you know, I wasn't even 30 yet and I didn't want my life to have just been what it was. So um, at that time as well, too, I did end up falling in love with my husband that I'm now with and have been with for 12 years. And, uh, you know, he put up with me still being in the industry for a, a little while when we first started dating. Um, we we went to high school together, so he was never a sex buyer or anything. He was a friend. 
And when we first started dating, he had heard about what I was doing because we both come from a small town and people talk. Mm -hmm. And he understood why I was doing what I was doing and that I was trying to pay for my education and dig myself out of debt. And he said to me, you know, I know this isn't you. This isn't what your life is meant to be. I want to have a life with you. I want to have more with you. And uh, if you want to have those things with me, I, I can't be okay with what you're doing. Like, it's time to stop. It's damaging you and it's time to get out. And uh, so he basically kind of gave me an ultimatum. And, um, you know, I appreciate actually that he did. I know people say never go for the person that gives you the ultimatum, but <laughs> it was probably the best thing he could have done for me. And, you know, I just so badly wanted a, a normal life and I wanted a normal job and I wanted to have children and I didn't want to subject my children to that dangerous lifestyle and, you know, the risks that come with that and to have me be so broken on the inside that I couldn't be a good mom and, and everything. So that was really kind of when I said enough, like, that's it. And right then a woman who still to this day does say that she chooses the industry and that she is happy. She approached me and said, I will buy you out and, and buy your brothel. So, um, I sold it to her and lost a great amount of money, but it was money well lost. And I've now been out of the sex trade for 10 years this month. So very happy, married with three children and about to finish my undergrad degree. So it, it all worked out well. Awesome. And you mentioned family and friends. What did your parents say during this time? Oh, they didn't like it. They didn't like any of it. Um, I didn't tell them about it for a very long time because, you know, I think any parent will always feel guilt and shame about, you know, how did I fail my child? What part did I play in this that led them to this? How could I have helped them to avoid this? And so even whenever I would talk about it, when they did find out uh, through my sister who actually told on me, <laughs> um, when they did find out it was, we didn't really go into it much because I don't think a parent wants to hear details like that. And so it was always just a very superficial conversation about it all. And uh, I know whenever I exited, they were so happy, like incredibly happy. But even then, I, I didn't really go back to kind of being the woman that they knew for many years because I was in recovery and still emotionally healing. And so I think my parents said it's only really been in the last like two or three years that they feel like I am truly coming back to who I was before I entered into the sex industry. Mm -hmm. So what is your mission today? Well, you know, people think that I'm out here trying to rescue or save women. And I always get told, you know, let women make their choices, let them do what they want to do. Don't tell people what to do. And really, I want people to understand, I don't think that that is my place or my role to try to rescue or save anyone. Really, my mission and what I'm out here trying to do is to share what I call the gray, the gray space. So again, going back to, you know, the, the two very polarized depictions of either sex work or trafficking, there's so much that exists in between those two polarized ends and nobody talks about that. You know, if you're out here and you are talking anti-trafficking rhetoric, no matter where you sit on the topic of prostitution, you support that. You are like, that's great. Nobody should be trafficked. 
But as soon as you enter into talking about the nuance of prostitution, you are not really appreciated for that because it is such a polarized debate and discussion. So I'm really not trying to um, necessarily sway any active women to exit. You know, obviously, I would like to see more women kind of understand and, and wake up to that brainwashing effect that sex work ideology has. But my real mission is just to um, talk about the gray areas and to highlight that and to debunk sex work ideology as the only other thing that exists besides trafficking and to talk about the harm that happens. And I want to give other women the gift that Rebecca Mott and Annie Lobert gave to me, which is the counter narrative of sex work ideology of women that weren't necessarily trafficked, um, you know, for their whole time in the sex industry and, and, you know, look at it differently now and, and everything. So um, I think, you know, with women getting that, um, that conversation and, and hearing those, those words and, and women discussing these things, ultimately, they will save themselves, you know, and, and only they can, that's not my, my role, I, I can't pay their bills, you know, I, I'm not able to do that, but I can provide them with some seeds that might, you know, flourish in their minds to make them have more confidence that they can exist outside of the sex industry and that they are not solely there to exist for men as a, a sex commodity and that they can have a life where, you know, they're valued for something more than their body and their performances. So that's really just my goal is, you know, to, to offer that to other women. Like I, I got it from others. I always ask myself if the roles had been turned around and women had been in charge since the beginning of time, would this still be, would it be the opposite way? Would men be mostly in prostitution? I mean, we wouldn't see kind of the cultural narrative that we have. So it's, it's like, you're right. We're brainwashed from birth. So how can we even see when we're thrown into these kind of narrow roles that we should accept as our our truth and our reality you know I'm, I'm Swedish so I'm a big proponent of the Nordic model which I've seen you speak about and you know that it, it's such a feminist country there so so the dialogue is mostly kind of that it's it's paid assault basically mm -hmm. it's controlling another human being and domineering another human being so I don't know if you want to share anything about because I saw you wrote about the Nordic model and supported I think yes I think that the Nordic model is the the only model that will ever work to inch us closer to gender parity and you know I think nothing is foolproof nothing is perfect so really people that want to come and pick apart the Nordic model we can pick apart any model we really can but when we look at full decriminalization that is opening the floodgates that is market expansion and what we need to do is stop doing these Band-Aid fixes and thinking that harm reduction equates to harm elimination, because it doesn't. We need to look at the bigger picture, you know, we need to go upstream and stop this flow rather than just pulling people out of the water. You know, I think that's like a Gandhi quote that, or something, but, you know, it's we need to become proactive on this issue and not reactive. And I think a lot of people want to... Uh, work within patriarchy and and they really have a defeatist mindset that well you know that's just how men are and well you know we can't change it and we just need to 
try to help women. Well, we can help women by making it so that the culture doesn't, you know, push us into this, this type of exploitation and then try to call it work. Like if that's not gaslighting to the fullest degree, I don't know what is because, you know, you do ask these people, you ask a lot of sex buyers, like, would you want this for your child? Would you want this for your, your, you know, your sister or anyone nine out of 10 times, they're going to say no. Because they know that even though they think that they are a good guy, they know that there's a lot of sex buyers that aren't. So I agree with you completely. It's a system of compensated sexual abuse. It's a, a patriarchal system of bypassing consent. Um, I, I even go as far as to say it's a system of paid rape. And that gets me a lot of hate to use that strong language. But I really think any type of coercive sex is rape. And I think that when we try to, you know, compartmentalize it as anything else, we're just getting into semantics. So until there's an equal power balance between men and women and economic balance, I'm not sure there can be a way where it's a, it's a healthy way to have this industry, unless there's a balance. I mean, I don't have the answers, but, but right now there's a disparity and, and, and oppression of one gender and exploitation sexually of one gender. So it's not equal. Yeah. And Rachel Morin did a a really good job at, you know, explaining that as well, saying, how can you discuss equality when it wasn't equal to begin with in the first place? And so definitely highly recommend reading her book as well, Paid For, because it is, yeah, such a powerful pulling apart of, of the understanding of everything. And another great book too, is The Pimping of Prostitution by Julie Bindle. That's another fantastic book that really talks about the marketing at hand because, you know, we forget this is all a business. This is all money driven and there's a lot of money to be made. You know, we won't pay women equally in a lot of sectors, but we will pay them just these exorbitant amounts of money to go do unskilled activities that require no education and, and situations where it's like, hey, the less experience you have, the younger you are, the more money you're going to make. It's it's all very backwards. And anybody who has a really good critical lens can see that it's just full on exploitation. And we're just trying to gussy it up and put lipstick onto a pig. Mm. I'm going to read those two books. So Mm -hmm. what do you want women and men who are listening to this show today? Is there anything specific you want them to know that you want to share? I think just my final thoughts are really that we can do better by women. We have to get out of that defeatist mindset, like I said, that, you know, is resigning us to believing, well, you know, that's just how the sexes interact. That's just the nature of men and women. It's not. Men are not born exploiters. Men are conditioned to exploit women through a culture, and we can't continue to uphold that culture. So we really... We can do better by women and we must do better by women because this has been going on for thousands of years. And, you know, to me, that's not a reason to lay down and die and and think that we can't change it. Now our tech is advanced so much. Our levels of education are advanced so much. Everything is there. We have the tools. We just need people to have the heart and to have the compassion and to look outside of themselves and to not make themselves the center of the world, but to look at things through a more collective lens. And, you know, on that note, I I really think feminism is still very much needed. You know, people want to denounce it and say, you know, we've we've gotten to the point where everybody is equal, everything is fine, we don't need feminism. There are tons of reasons why we still do. 
And really, I think commercial sexual exploitation is right up there at the top of them. It is one of the most pressing Absolutely. feminist issues. Yeah, it's a, it's like the snowball that's rolling downhill. It's it's only gaining momentum, and we need to stop. You know uh, that that buildup of it because women are hurting, women are struggling, and it just hurts me to see a world that is okay with that. Yeah, and so you know, I just want to ask people and encourage people to get involved, you know, donate your, your money, donate your time to end demand efforts and, and be a vocal supporter of equality. And that's really the bare minimum, you know, get out there and contribute something. Don't be a, a sideliner because that's, it's not going to get us anywhere. Well, Andrea, I can't thank you enough for coming on the New Feminist Podcast. You're truly amazing. You're wealth of information. And I, I wish I had another hour because <laughs> I, <laughs> I have so many additional questions I wanted to ask along this. But anyway, thank you so much for the work you do and for sharing all of this. And um, uh, hopefully you'll come one, one more time. Oh, yes, I would love to. I've got some works that are coming out in 2023. I've got a, a book that I'm co-authoring alongside one of Canada's mothers of our missing and murdered Indigenous women. So that book will be coming out in the spring. It's called When Men Buy Sex, Who Really Pays? And uh, it's a very good analysis from the Canadian perspective on commercial sex. And I also have an eight-part docuseries that will be getting released uh, this year as well in 2023. And that's called Labeled. And I'm doing that in conjunction with uh, local film production, Guerrilla Motion Pictures. And so lots of, uh, you know, great things, I think, ahead. Oh, that's and awesome. You definitely have to come back. You just let us know when that is and come back on the show and we'll share about that. That's wonderful. And if you have a website, you want people to go on, share that now too, or... Yeah, I actually don't. And, you know, oh, okay. I, really, yeah, I need to get to the point of doing that. But um, maybe that'll be my goal in 2023 is actually yeah, getting yeah. myself organized for once because, yeah, I'm, I'm a little yeah. bit behind on that. But I'll let you know for sure if I get to it. Anyway, thank you so much for your time. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you so much. You can follow Andrea Heinz on Twitter at HeinzSight2020. Andrea is the founder of the Blue Sky Bursary at the Center to End All Sexual Exploitation in Canada. It gives a $5,000 scholarship to women who are active or recently exited from the commercial sex trade who wish to pursue post-secondary education in policing, corrections, law, governance, political science, or women's studies. If you wish to donate, you can go to canadahelps.org right slash en right slash charities right slash center to end all sexual exploitation and specify blue sky bursary if you like this episode make sure to share it with your friends for info and links on our guests go to our website thenewfeminist.net and make sure to subscribe we always love to hear from you. If you have someone you think we should speak to, let us know. And make sure to follow on Instagram at the new feminist official. We'll be back next Friday with a new podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Jill Sorensen. Thanks for listening. Our producers are Sienna Jackson and Jill Sorensen. Our editor is Lucy Baker Swinburne. Original music by Richard Baskin. You can contact us at thenewfeminist.net.
Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating or review. This is your host, Jill Sorensen. You've been listening to The New Feminist. Until our next episode, thank you for listening.